Well, good morning, family. Uh, my name is Andy Johnson. I am married to Melissa. I am the father of three children, ages 13 to 16, which means we're that family these days. We are, we are the youth group family. We're, we're blowing and going and, and all the wonderful things that raising teenagers entails. Uh, normally, whenever I get to, to speak as a guest speaker at a church, I'll start with our service on the mission field. And I'll get to that. Uh, but here in this part of the country, I felt that I needed to start by saying my parents both met at West Texas State. Not at, not at West Texas A&M, at West Texas State. Uh, they, uh, they, they worshiped at the Central Church of Christ. The first five years of my life uh, I spent here in Amarillo before my dad followed various oil field jobs uh, around, around Texas, eventually landing in Wichita Falls. And so uh, all, of my, all of my roots are range in between Big Spring and Amarillo, the really beautiful part of the country. Um, which is why I was so glad that we read Psalm 95 where it talked about how his, fo- his hands formed the dry land. I think that's really important for those of us from this part of the country to understand. He did it on purpose. Uh, so speaking of dry land, uh, my family, uh, my wife and I, and eventually our three children, we spent 13 years as missionaries to a country called Burkina Faso. That's a little country in West Africa. And we went to work with a little tribe there. The tribe name is, name is Dagara. And while we were there, we were privileged to see God begin a movement. Uh, thir- there were churches that were planted in about 115 different villages. And the best part of that is that 90% of those were planted not by missionaries, but by recently converted new believers who had come out of the traditional Dagari religion to plant churches in their own villages. Uh, roughly 15,000 people or so came to the Lord. In other words, about 5% of the tribe came to Christ over a period of about 12 years. And it was an incredible privilege to have a front row seat to this thing that God was doing there. Uh, So eventually, though, we were able to say goodbye to our home there, and I served for a little while as a missions minister at a church in central Alabama as I was continuing my mission service across the Mississippi River. Um, And and there for a few years now, I get to serve as the director of care and the prayer coordinator for Mission Resource Network. And, And we're really an organization that's about leaders. That's what we do. Whether it's whether it's assessing and training new missionary candidates or caring for workers that are currently on the field or helping to train the churches that send missionaries, uh, we're all about that so that we can see new movements of the gospel among unreached people groups. So this morning, as I'm with you, I'm going to try to accomplish a few things, which every one of my preaching professors would have told me is a terrible idea. We're going to try to get a few things done. First of all, I'm going to try to update you on what's happening in the Mediterranean Rim region. Uh, This is something that you guys have been a part of for a while, so I want to update you on what God's doing there. Uh, Then after that, I want to to help you understand, as you're laying more bricks in the foundation of what it takes to be a good, healthy, sending church, I want to help you understand a little bit about what makes missionaries tick. What are the the things that are rattling around inside the heads and the hearts of cross-cultural workers? Uh, in, In borrowing biblical language, we're going to talk about the missionary heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, But before we do that, I'd like to to offer this time intentionally to the Father. So let's pray. Lord, we turn these these next minutes over to you. We are are people who are aware of your presence. We ask you to make us more aware of your presence. Lord, we want to be aware of all that you're saying and doing. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Father, if there's anything that I've prepared today that doesn't reflect your heart, I pray you'd strike it from my lips. And that your Holy Spirit would speak in such a way that your people get to hear from you today. That's our prayer, Lord, in the Christ. Amen. So the MedRim Initiative is a collection of cross-cultural workers 
It's really a team of teams that are scattered across the, the region surrounding the Mediterranean who are all committed to making disciples among Muslims. This is actually a response to something that God was already doing. A few years ago, we at MRN were made aware of a wave that was already in motion. It's not something we were a part of starting. We noticed it was happening and, and jumped in on this good thing. This wave of more Muslims coming to Christ, coming out of Islam and to Christianity in our days than the previous centuries combined. It's this remarkable movement of the Spirit. Now, some of these were among refugees who were transiting through the country of Greece from war-torn countries, and, uh, and that's where the greatest concentration of Medrim workers are found today. But it's not exclusively a refugee work, though. Other workers are settled in North Africa and in the Near East, where Muslims are settled in all aspects of their lives except their spirits. Workers were discovering that God, through his spirit and then through dreams and visions, had already beat the missionaries there. He'd gone ahead of them, and he was already at work. Stories abound of workers meeting Muslims for the first time who, who were greeted with questions about, who's the man in white? What does it mean when someone says to me, I am the door, come in? So MRN responded to this wave by recruiting churches to send and workers to go and, and trying to help them meet each other. Once those workers have gotten to the field, we've been committed to providing missionary care, to providing resourcing, to help with strategy uh, in a way that, that extends beyond any one mission team, but that encompasses an entire region. Teams get to bless teams. As, 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 Muslim, as recent converts move from one part of Greece to another part of Greece or to Western Europe, teams hand off these contacts to others. This, this level of cooperation is is not always found on the mission field. It's certainly not always found within our fellowship. Um, I, I deeply love the churches of Christ, but with a wry grin, I'll often talk about how we are a cantankerously autonomous group of people sometimes. But I, but I, but I love to see this, this cooperation, this communication that's happening among mission teams, and it's bearing fruit. Now, the reality is, and those of you know, you, you know that, that measuring movement of the Spirit is always a complicated thing to do. Uh, but one of the things that we can measure are how workers are getting to the field and how they're staying healthy. And since I'm a missionary care guy, that, that's kind of what I wanted to hone in on here. To date, 100% of the workers that have completed MRN's assessment and their training process have eventually launched to the field. Uh, this, this training process is an arduous process. It's tougher than anything I went through before I went to Burkina Faso. For reference, there's a sending organization that we kind of swim in the same waters with them, much larger. They launch a lot more people than we do. Uh, but they launch 72% of the people that go through their program, and they, and they tout that as a, as a pretty good number, which it really is. Additionally, uh, all of the workers that have launched into the MedRim have at least made it to the end of their first two-year term, and that's not a guarantee. Friends, those first couple of years on the field are rough. Those are hard years of, of learning and culture learning and, and, and mourning and, and orientation. Those are hard years, and, and, and I believe that MRN's partnership through intentional first-term coaching and through helping the churches that send them to, to know more about them and to, and to be healthier senders, I believe that's a big part of the early success that these med-rim missionaries are seeing in simply thriving and living on the field. So today, there are 28 adults who are scattered around the region serving as workers in the med-rim. They are, they're missionaries, they reproduce, that's what they do, so there's a whole bunch of kids. I have trouble keeping track of how many kids there are. Um, but I particularly love the way that God has called the nations to the nations. Among these 28 people, there are passports from Burundi, Japan, Hungary, Cuba, Iran, and even a few plain old United States passports. God is at work 
in the Med Rim. And the Southwest Church of Christ has been a part of that almost from the beginning. And I want to say thank you on behalf of MRN and on behalf of the workers that have been blessed by your partnership in the Med Rim Initiative. Uh, I actually get to fly out tomorrow. To, after I'm done here, I'm driving back to Fort Worth down that beautiful stretch of 287. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm going to be flying out tomorrow morning with my bride and with one of my coworkers to head over to Greece uh, to spend some time with some of those workers. One of those mission teams has just crossed the one-year point, and it's time for a check-in. And we're also going to be having some strategy conversations about as, as the flow of refugees has shifted in the country of Greece, how do the workers respond to that? So I'm excited about that. I'm excited to get to be with a Medrim partner church on one day, and then two days later, land in Thessaloniki, Greece, to be with Medrim missionaries. This is, this is good timing for me. So the second thing that I want to do is a really quick vocabulary lesson, which everybody loves. Um, I had an English teacher for a mother, so I, I got used to those. You've probably noticed by now in, in the way that I talk about missionaries that I don't always call missionaries missionaries. Uh, sometimes I call them cross-cultural workers. Sometimes I call them workers. I might call them sent ones or servants. And the reason for that is because many of our family, our, 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 our brothers and sisters in Christ who are serving around the world are technically doing illegal things in the countries in which they live. Uh, there are places that stand opposed to the proclamation of the gospel. If host governments discover these missionaries' true occupation or if they're, or if they're forced to deal with something they already know in the first place, then likely those missionaries are going to be kicked out, which is, which is a problem. But what's even harder is that often the, the people that they've been serving will actually wind up bearing the brunt of them being forced out of the country. So we've decided at MRN, at Mission Resource Network, that we're going to begin slowly phasing out our use of the word missionary uh, because of these security concerns and also, frankly, links to colonialism in the minds of much of the developing world. That word missionary, whether it is fair or not, is linked to colonialism. So today, you're going to hear me flip and flop. You're going to hear me go back and forth, and that's okay. But I've been encouraging churches to particularly be very careful about what they post on social media or on their church's website about the workers that they're sending out into the field. So before we get to what makes workers tick, that, that stuff that, that's rattling around inside their heads and hearts, I want, to, I want to talk about why we send missionaries in the first place. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Friends, it's what churches do. From the very first time that we've had a thing called churches, they've been sending missionaries. The church at Antioch is known for a few firsts. It's one of the perks of being one of the very first churches. It's the, it's the place where believers were first known as Christians, which is kind of a cool thing. And it's also the very first missionary sending church. And so I want us to, to take a look at that this morning. It comes out of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fifth book in what we call the New Testament. It comes right after the four gospels that tell the stories about Jesus' life from four different perspectives. And it tells us what Jesus' followers did after Jesus had been raised from the dead and had gone up into heaven. So we're going to be reading out of Acts 13 here for just a moment. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and there were teachers. There's Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and also Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them, he sent them off. The two of them, then sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, sailed from there to Cyprus, and the story goes on. So what I want is, I want you to notice here about the sending of these first missionaries. First of all, I want you to notice who was involved in this. It was the leaders of the church. 
not, not people on the fringes of the church. It was the prophets, the teachers. We know somebody had some money. Manan, this guy that grew up with Herod, you don't grow up with Herod if you didn't come from money. And these were the people who were worshiping and fasting. And as they heard from the Holy Spirit, they had the courage to do what the Holy Spirit said to do. So they fasted, they prayed some more, and then they sent them off. But there's a reason why I kept reading to verse 4. In verse 3, we're told that the church placed their hands on them and sent them off. But then we turn right around in verse 4, and what do we see there in verse 4? Who's sending them off? It's the Holy Spirit. They had reached this beautiful place of congruence with the Holy Spirit where they could say in one breath, us sending these guys and the Holy Spirit sending these guys, it's the same thing. And every once in a while, when the people of God listen well, and when we pay attention to God, we reach this beautiful place of assurance where we are able to confidently say we are living in to what God has called us to do. We actually don't see that level of confidence expressed all that often in Scripture. Pretty often, it's around the sending of missionaries. We're going to see a second instance of that here in just a minute. So these workers, they went out and they did some pretty great stuff. Over the next couple of chapters in Acts, you would read about how they confronted magicians. They preached some really cool sermons. They quoted some really interesting Old Testament scriptures in some really interesting ways. They got run out of a city, but even in that city, they still saw the disciples filled with joy and the Spirit. At one point, they got confused for the very gods they were preaching against. And I'll tell you, in, in my line of work, that's, called, that's what we call a missionary fail. When, when you're preaching against gods and they confuse you for those gods. And one of the things that I'm proud to say, I made a lot of mistakes on the mission field. Not once did a single person ever confuse me for a Greek god. That was, that's one of the things that I can say with pride. So we don't actually hear about the Antioch church again for a while. Until there's a group that goes from Antioch, visits them, drags them out of the city, tries to stone them, and leave them for dead. Uh, so my hope is that any of the times that Southwest visits your workers on the field, that's not the outcome. That is an example of bad missionary care. just want to say that. It's in the Bible, but it's not what we're supposed to do. So then we will go ahead and read now out of chapter 14. Let's turn over to 1421. They, that's Paul and Barnabas, they preached the good news in that city, and they won a large number of disciples, and then they returned to these three places, Lystra, Iconium, in Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. They had a little furlough sermon for them. They said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and then with prayer and fasting, Paul and Barnabas committed them to the Lord in whom they'd put their trust. Now, I believe right here we have in Scripture the very first ever furlough. The missionaries were not yet done with their work, but they were passing back through the church. And there is this beautiful demonstration of the two-way nature of sending missionaries. It's not simply sending workers out. You also receive a blessing. And Paul and Barnabas came back to the church with a message that the church needed to hear, and they blessed them with that. And then the church listened to them. Now, that church even trusted them to, to speak into how they led their church and, and, and what leaders were, were elevated as shepherds in that church. But then did you catch what happened? The church sent them out with prayer and fasting. And as they came back through, the missionaries blessed them with prayer and fasting. In the kingdom, when we send, we not only give a blessing, when it's done right, friends, we also receive a blessing. And we're going to wrap up this first missionary journey by reading the next few verses out of verse 26. From Italia, they then sailed back to Antioch, 
where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they'd now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, which is a big deal. And then they stayed there with them for a long time. So at this point, the missionaries are done. They've gone and they've done and they've done the things that God called them to do and the church welcomes them back. The church gathers together. The church celebrates what they've done and then the church hosts them for a while. They welcome them back during their re-entry into Antioch. Now, we don't have time to go into it today, but it's pretty significant how the story continues in Acts. In Acts 15, we have this incredible, incredible description of spiritual discernment among early believers as they were wrestling with the main theological controversy that was facing the church. It was a question of basic identity for the people of God. And that group discernment in chapter 15 that led to a richer understanding of the grace of God for all the nations that matters so much to those of us who are not Jewish, at least those of us who do not want circumcision and baptism lumped together, it happened in part because of the experiences that those workers had and what they brought back to the church. Because we know from earlier, I told you, there was that group from Antioch that went and tried to kill them for what they were doing. There were some people in Antioch that could have pulled the church in an opposite direction. I don't believe it's an overstatement to say, friends, that the gates of the church were thrown wide open to non-Jews, in part because the Antioch church was used by God to send missionaries and then listen to them when they came back. And that's a part of why we send. We, as a church here in the United States, will be better equipped to face an ever-changing world, an ever-evolving world, whenever we give ear to and we really understand the people who ventured out into it. So that's kind of a biblical foundation for why we care and for why we send. Now I want to turn and I just want to share a little bit about what's, what makes missionaries tick. And to do that, we'll use the, the, the scriptural de- de- divisions of people by talking about their heart, mind, soul, and strength. So I want to start by talking about the missionary heart. Something you would need to understand about me is that I am a different person. <laughs> if we're at my home church, I would have gotten some amens right there. I am a different person for having loved and been loved by people in different parts of the world. You see, some of my very best friends in all of the world don't speak a lick of English and they have no real desire to. In many respects, the people who know me best still live in Burkina Bay villages in West Africa. They are the ones who walked with me as I turned the corner into adulthood fresh out of grad school. They're the ones who struggled along with my bride and I through many miscarriages and infertility struggles. They're the ones who rejoiced with, me, with us when God gave us three children in three years. Then they're the ones who helped pray the floodgates back shut because God had given us three children in three years. They, they are the ones, they are the, they are the ex-pagans from whom I learned what grace really means. These were the friends, get this, who told me during a season of political unrest in Burkina Faso that if things went sideways, they would keep my wife and children safe for me. It's the kind of thing that changes how you look at refugees and asylum seekers once you've been told something like that. Now, I like to say that I have a peculiar patriotism. I grew up mostly in Wichita Falls, right outside of Shepherd Air Force Base, in a church that was full of pilots who were stopping by on their training. I came to love the Blue Angels as a little guy. In fact, I've got this memory with my father where we saw the Blue Angels and the Beach Boys all on the same weekend. I I tear up at the singing of the national anthem. My passport, that little blue book, 
really matters to me, especially when I'm outside these borders. I have seen a lot of places in this world, and to a large extent, I really love being an American. I also have two sons who were born on Burkina Bay soil and a daughter sandwiched in the middle that really wishes she had been. I care deeply about what happens in Burkina Faso, and my heart breaks that terrorism rocks that country almost every week. But no one in the American media cares enough to talk about it. I don't know if you've even noticed, Burkina Faso had its second coup in eight months' time on Friday. So even as I'm standing talking to you, my friends are living through their second coup in eight months' time. Now, most of the time, my two patriotisms don't come in conflict with each other. Although sometimes politics or careless words from a national leader might bring that about. But for the worker's heart, for the sent one's heart, it runs a lot deeper than politics. I want you to listen to what one of my friends who was a worker in central China had to say. He said, my heart is in two different countries. I feel at home in neither, which makes my soul long for heaven. His peculiar patriotism is such because he understands that his real allegiance is to a greater kingdom. It's neither to these United States nor to China, which is something, by the way, that our Lord Jesus the Christ understands very well, as the Son of Man had no particular place to lay his head. Those who are loved and who love different countries and peoples and languages and cultures over time develop a love for the God who made them all, and they have a desire to be where his rule is recognized, and they're working every day to make it on earth as it already is in heaven. And they can bring to the sending church this understanding that we're not earthly creatures just dragging our trains around trying to scrape our way into heaven. We're sons and daughters of a king, of a greater kingdom. And we're marching that way towards his kingdom and we're trying to take as much company along with us for the journey as we can. That's the missionary heart. I'd like to talk to you now about the missionary mind. Uh, this, is, this is some of the fun stuff for me. This is where I get to to tell some stories on myself and on my missionary friends about our weirdness uh, and where you can hopefully understand why we're weird and how you can bring a blessing to us in our weirdness as you send. So to begin with, I want to go back to my buddy who was in China. He also wrote me in an email. He said, we have to be a little bit off to do what we do, and that's okay. And I love that my sending church loves that that's okay. Good sending churches embrace the quirkiness of their own church family, and I'm, I'm just meeting you today, but from an outsider's perspective, I'm guessing there's probably some quirks within the Southwest Church. Uh, and, and they extend grace to each other, and they extend grace to the people that they send. I have felt this weirdness. So, for instance, and, and many of my friends have a hard time believing this, because, but, but I, I tucked in my shirt today. I dressed up. Uh, when we first moved back to the United States, I tried to buy a suit. Because I was going to be a minister in the Deep South. And I knew that ministers in the Deep South needed suits. So I'm going to try to live into this. So I've been told about a discount Dillard's store. It's the kind of place where a missions minister can walk in and buy a suit. And I walked in and I tried. I really did. But I was a man pushing 40 who didn't understand suit measurements. I didn't understand why when I put my pants on, they weren't hemmed. And they, they extended nine inches off of my feet. It was crowded. It was dark. And I panicked. I had to get out of there. I, I, I was experiencing culture stress, and I just had to get out of the store. So I ran outside. I pulled out my flip phone because I was intimidated by smartphones at this point in my life. Still kind of am. And I called my wife, Melissa, and I said, babe, you've got you've to wrap up. We have to go. 
she very sympathetically told me, sympathetically told me to pull myself together. There's sales up in here. Um, oftentimes, missionary women are tougher than the men that they're married to. But whether it's picking out a deodorant or it's picking out breakfast cereal or it's trying to talk back to people standing next to them in the bathroom that are talking on their Bluetooth headsets, which is a true story, three times, uh, missionary minds have a hard time fitting in. You've probably noticed. Missionaries sometimes eat differently. They talk differently. They spend their money differently. They watch football differently or they watch a different football. And they worship and they pray differently. So why is it that way? try and help you understand that, I want to tell you a little story about shapes. I want you to imagine that you are born a triangle. You grow up in, in triangle land. Uh, you have triangle parents. Uh, you, you eat triangle food. Every once in a while, you'll venture out and you might eat some triangle mechs. But for the most part, you just eat triangle food. You grow up in a triangle church singing songs written by triangles about, frankly, a triangle-shaped God. Uh, and in your mind, you've got this triangle-shaped God, and, and you're content as a triangle. You bump around the triangles, and everybody gets each other. But then a funny thing happens. One day, God calls your triangle self to go and serve elsewhere, and he calls you to get on an airplane and fly your triangle self to circle land. And you land in circle land as a triangle. And you show up with all of these, this excitement and, and these dreams about how you're going to serve the circles, but right off the bat, the stuff that makes you you winds up poking into the people that you've been sent to serve. And you want to bless them, but, but you kind of flip and flop through life, and they roll through life. They eat circle food, and, and circle food isn't really, it's not really your favorite. They speak a circle language. And one of the things that's really disconcerting to you, as you start introducing your friends to Jesus, they don't think God's a triangle. They see God as a circle. These are all sorts of very disorienting things for you. And this is hard on missionaries. They, they, don't, they don't realize just how triangly they're going to be in the land of circles. But then, by the grace of God, if you live there long enough, if you start to pay attention to people long enough, if you learn their language and your culture, by God's grace, one day... Now, you're never going to be a circle. You weren't born there. If you weren't born there, you can't be a circle. But maybe by God's grace, you might get to be a hexagon. Now... You're a hexagon living in circle land. And friends, this is the sweet spot. This is the good stuff. These are those years where you feel effective, where, where home feels like home. Now, you can't roll with the circles, but you can kind of hippity-hop along with them as a hexagon. And you, and you come to understand that the ways that they perceive God, the ways they understand salvation history, might have something to them. And your own faith has become richer for having seen God from a different perspective. You've learned from your friends. It's a great season of life. One of my favorite periods in my life was when I was a hexagon living among circles. But then a funny thing happens. Someday you're going to get back on an airplane and you're going to move back to what people call home. And where do you land? You land back in triangle land. And now the stuff that used to make you you pokes into you. The, the, when you go to church and you worship with your friends and Sunday after Sunday after Sunday you only hear songs written by triangles about a triangle-shaped God, it just doesn't, it doesn't quite fit right. And you just feel weird. You feel a little different. Now, there's some perks to it. You wind up identifying with other people 
who are on the fringes, other people who don't look like triangles, other people who don't flip and flop through life the way triangles do. But the reality is, and nobody ever explained this to me before I went, for having lived among the circles, you'll never again be fully triangle again. You're always going to have a divided heart. Now, over time, you look more like a triangle, um, and you get more at ease, but you're always going to be forever a little bit different. And again, that's okay. But here's the thing I want to land on about this, though. That's the adults. The adults, they go into it with their eyes kind of wide open. They chose it. What about their kids? They, they grew up in a false home. They, they grew up in a hexagon home, surrounded by circles, going on furlough to Granny Triangle's house. So what do we call these people? Let's call them stars, because that's what they are. Most often we call them TCKs these days, third culture kids. We used to call them missionary kids. Call them a third culture kid because they are this third rail culture in between that of their parents' passport country and their host country. And these third culture kids bring such gifts to the table. They are true world Christians. They see people that other people don't see. They invest in people very quickly and they trust easily because they know they have to because they are used to people coming into their lives for very intense periods of time and then being gone again back across an ocean. Those of you who've ever visited workers on the field get this, that, that very quick connection that happens on the field. But at the same time, one of the things I want you to understand, in order to be a good sending church, I want you to understand third culture kids can risk losing themselves in their chameleon nature as they, as they, as they shift, as they, code, as they code switch in between cultures. That is why it is so important that as a sending church, you know and understand as much as you can and love the children of missionaries who come through your church on visits for the stars that they are. They can enrich your lives if you'll just give them the space to do so. So I want to ask you, the next time you meet a third culture kid, ask lots of questions. Let them talk. Listen to them. And you just might realize that these people who are hexagons or stars floating around triangle land actually have some pretty great things to offer you, even if they never did get around to buying a suit. All right, let's talk about the soul. I want to make three quick points about the soul. Now, I mentioned to you that I am learning how to be a triangle once again. And one of the ways that I'm learning how to be a triangle is I've learned that in a sermon, all your words are supposed to start with the same letter. So we're going to have three things that start with the letter D, because that's what triangle's like. First of all, delight. You need to understand the word delight if you're going to understand workers. Because they understand the delight of being squarely in the middle of God's plans for their lives. Now, that is not to say that they always enjoy what they do or that, even, or that they ever even like all the people they're around. Sometimes, just like the rest of us, they have bad days. Sometimes they're miserable and they'd rather be somewhere else. A friend of mine who served for a dozen years in Tanzania in Eastern Africa explained that his, over, his overseeing church helped love him and support him through doubts and disappointments and depression. But through it all, there was always this deep abiding sense of God's pleasure in him because he was doing what God had created him to do for that season of his life. The second word I want you to understand about workers is the word dry. You see, the support system, the mentors, the churches, the resources that help somebody become a leader in their own culture such that a church said, hey, we think you're great. We want you to go somewhere else and do what you're doing here. Many of those resources are yanked away from missionaries right at the moment when they need it the most. Podcasts, videos help, but nothing takes the time of 
takes the place of time spent with people that breathe life into you. And so as a church that wants to send workers well, I want to ask you to beg God for streams of living water to flow in abundance into the souls of his workers. Pray that whenever they seek God, they would find him. That they would look up and they would discover that the very same God that was God in Amarillo, Texas, is God in Thessaloniki, Greece. And that he is still closer than a brother. And finally, to understand the missionary soul, the last, last word you've got to understand is the word discipleship. Now, churches these days talk a lot about this. At MRN, we harp on it a lot. But friends, it's the ball game. It's the whole thing. Helping to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus is what all of us, all the time, everywhere, ought to be about. Now, I believe this word discipleship is actually probably a little more intimidating than the actual process itself. So I wanted to give you just real quick way to remember what we're talking about when we talk about discipleship. First of all, I would say you need to engage the word with a little w. I loved sitting in class today as we talked about the difference between the little w word and the big w word. You engage the word. You read it. You read it again. You discover what it's trying to say for you in your life, and then you go and do it, expecting that God expects you to be changed from an encounter with his word. Second thing you got to do is you have to follow the word with a capital W. And this refers to Jesus. You need to shape your life after Jesus' life the very best that you can. You need to pray the way that Jesus prayed. You need to care about the people and the kinds of things that Jesus cared about. You need to surround yourself with the kind of people he surrounded himself with. And in that process, pour yourself into a few of them. Even giving them access to parts of your life to which others aren't given. And finally, you need to go into the world. And I want to encourage you, think that that means you. Now, this might not be across the seas, but I don't want you to dismiss that possibility. But every single believer is called to become more like Jesus and to lead others into a growing relationship with him. And so finally, we'll wrap up here at strength. This is where I'm going to land the plane. Missionary strength comes last, I think, in part because so little of our strength is our own. The missionary strength can really be summed up, as author Bob Goff puts it, in one word, with. See, those first workers, those 11 guys, uh, one of whom had betrayed their Lord to death, who were left staring up into the sky on top of a mountain, had absolutely zero chance of success of doing what Jesus had told them to do, but for the fact that Jesus had promised to be with them, which was a promise he fulfilled just a little bit later with the coming of the Holy Spirit. His promise to be with his people turned this moment of devastating abandonment into one of reassuring eternal presence. Now, every one of the workers that have been sent cross-culturally have been sent to do an impossible task. It is simply impossible to do these things on their own. Every med rim worker, all 28 of those adults that are scattered around the Mediterranean rim are tackling impossible tasks. The Johnson family's pretty cool family, or at least four out of five of us are, but we stood no chance of succeeding in our ministry in Burkina Faso without the Spirit's involvement. The things that you as a church are involved in, things like Project Philippines or WBS or that work in Chennai that you partner with, all of those things will fail unless Jesus is with them. If Jesus isn't in it, it won't happen. And so one of the things that missionaries bring to the table and they can help their sending churches with is that they are daily attempting things that are bound to fail if Jesus doesn't show up. And they can encourage local churches who 
who have the building paid off or they're working towards having it paid off, who live relatively comfortable lives, they can encourage them and challenge them with questions. When's the last time this church tried something that would fail if Jesus didn't show up in miraculous fashion? That's one of the things that churches can do, that workers can do for their churches is to be pushing you to always be considering what is God calling us to do that is beyond our own strength so that he gets all the glory for it. So where I want to wrap up I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to speak a blessing over you as a church. Um, And then after that, I think, uh, Doyle, you said that you're going to pray for the Medrim workers and specifically for the opportunity we have to care for them. So let me pray for you as a church. Father, in the name of Jesus the Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bless the Southwest Church of Christ. Father, I pray that they would be a group of people who understand that their true allegiance is to a greater kingdom. That they, would, that they would appreciate the country and the state and the cities in which they live, but God, that they would be dedicated to the kingdom of God first. And that this would be a church who from their emphasis on loving you and loving neighbors would be a part of making it on earth as it already is in heaven. Father, I pray that the Southwest Church would be a better sending church. I pray that you would give them a vision for the future. I pray that you would help them to understand what's next for them in their work that extends beyond the boundaries of Amarillo, beyond the boundaries of Texas. Father, I pray also that you will bless the leaders of the Southwest Church, kind of like those leaders that you did in Antioch, that they would dream God-sized dreams. Father, I pray that you would give them the courage and the freedom to attempt things that are bound to fail if Jesus doesn't show up. And then, Father, please, I am asking you, when they attempt those things, show up. Be there with them. Glorify your name through this church. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray these things. Amen. Uh, Andy, we thank you. Thank you for being here with us and uh, teaching us about that heart. Uh, Greg's going to come up. Greg Ogburn is somewhere around here. Are we going to go there, actually? Okay. We're going to go. We're going to put you in the middle of us. We're going to bless you and pray over you and pray over the work. I, in, in case you missed it, uh, he leaves tomorrow to go to Greece for two, is it two weeks? Yeah. For two weeks. And he was kind enough uh, to drive to Amarillo and back <laughs> before, you know, hopping on a plane to Greece. So thank you so much. Will you all give him a hand before we pray over him? Thank you. So if you'll go to Greg, church, if you'll rise and surround uh, Andy so we can bless him and pray over him. Uh, yeah, you can stand and walk that way. We can move. It's legal now. <laughs> and again when we when we finish our time in prayer here then our elders will spread around the building if you have any needs that need to be met uh, they'll be happy to hear those needs or visit with you about anything the missions team will be in the back if you have any questions about that as well so out by the information desk so let's go to our father in prayer <clears throat> Oh God, we thank you so much that you're bigger than we can even imagine. That you are not exclusive to the United States. That you're not exclusive to Texas and you're not exclusive to Amarillo. But you are a God of the universe. Full of love and full of power and full of desire to draw men and women to you. And Father, we're just so thankful that Andy could be with us today. 
We're mindful of the, the journey ahead of him. And we ask your blessings on he and his wife as they travel over to Greece to do what we should do to each other, to encourage and uplift, to check in, to take care of one another. And so we're thankful that he's able to do that. And Father, we're just so thankful for the work that is being done there. Father, we're also mindful that you're at work around the world. You're at work in the Philippines. You're at work in India. You're at work in Sierra Leone. You're at work in New Mexico. And Father, we pray that your work will continue to expand and that you will continue to call people to that work. And Father, as we try to mature into a better sending church, I pray that you will raise up one of our own to go to the mission field, to spread your good news, maybe for the first time to somebody who's never heard it before. More importantly, Father, that they may live the good news to a place that may have never seen it before. And Father, we pray that your kingdom come more and more on this earth as it is in heaven. Through men like Andy and the 28 people who are already on the ground there, through those we support already, Father, may this good news be spread further and further into your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.